Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. U.S. debt has grown faster than national income for more than 50 years, and according to the U.S. Constitution, Congress has to authorize all borrowing. A debt limit was put in place in the early 20th century as part of the Second Liberty Bond Act of 1917, so that the Treasury wouldn't need to ask for permission each time it had to issue debt. A general limit on the federal debt was then imposed in 1939. The US government hit its borrowing limit yesterday and the US Treasury is now taking extraordinary measures to meet its debt obligations. Let's talk about why people are a bit more concerned about the debt limit today than they have been in the past and what happens if Congress doesn't agree to lift the debt ceiling. So the US Department of the Treasury pays the US government's bills and to do this they issue debt. Whenever the debt ceiling is reached, it can be raised by a simple majority vote in both houses of Congress. If Congress refuses to raise the debt limit, the Treasury then finds itself unable to pay the government bills once its bank account at the Fed runs out. Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, wrote a letter to Congress last week warning that the debt ceiling would be hit this week and that the Treasury would have to take extraordinary measures to prevent the US from defaulting on its obligations. Yesterday that debt ceiling was hit and the US Treasury is now taking those extraordinary measures so that it can meet its debt obligations. The extraordinary measures can only be expected to buy a few months of time, meaning that we can expect a showdown between the Biden administration and lawmakers on Capitol Hill in the next few months. Now, to be clear, the debt limit does not authorize new government spending. It simply allows the government to finance legal obligations that they've already committed to spending that congresses and presidents of both parties have made in the past. The spending being discussed has already happened. It's simply paying for that spending that's being discussed. Now, of course, the Republicans in opposition who are opposed to high government spending are aware of this, but they can use the debt ceiling approval process to extract promises to reduce future spending and borrowing. They might use this leverage to try and roll back some of the spending involved in the recent Inflation Reduction Act, for example. In her letter, Janet Yellen wrote that failure to meet the government's obligations would cause irreparable harm to the US economy, the livelihoods of all Americans and global financial stability. And that is true. Now, this debt ceiling debate has, of course, happened quite a few times already, and investors have gotten used to the drama. Legislators negotiate, make threats, and then at the last minute get their act together and agree. The debt ceiling was increased 90 times in the 20th century. It was raised 18 times under Ronald Reagan, 8 times under Bill Clinton, 7 times under George W. Bush, and 5 times under Barack Obama. There's nothing new about this. 
Now, whenever it looks like an agreement on the debt ceiling won't be reached, the same solutions are put forth as a means to allow the government to avoid default. One is the president invoking his 14th Amendment authority to pay the government bills. The other is the minting of a trillion dollar coin to refill the government general account. Matt Iglesias, a well-known blogger and journalist, has recently argued that the government could solve this problem by issuing premium bonds. The problem with each of these solutions is that they're legally questionable and reek of desperation. They're not the best solution to the problem. So is this debate just another storm in a teapot where we'll have to see hashtag just mint the coin trend on social media for a few months before Congress ups the debt ceiling? Or might it be different this time? If it is different this time, how might markets be impacted? The reason that investors fear that the debt ceiling debate might be more dramatic this time around is quite simply that Congress appears to be more chaotic this time than at any point in recent history. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House Majority Leader, became the first party leader in a century to fail to be elected Speaker in the initial round of voting. He was finally elected after three days on the 15th round of voting. This number was last surpassed in the run-up to the American Civil War. The reason that this might be a problem for markets is that any time there's a difficult or controversial question that needs to be settled by the House, we could see a replay of this drama. This time the worry isn't about a division between Republicans and Democrats, it's that a small group of rebels within the Republican Party could obstruct the goals of mainstream Republicans. The worry is that the US might have a Congress that's unable to agree on anything. There is, of course, a range of possible outcomes. The least worrying outcome is that there's some chaos and drama around the debt ceiling, which causes volatility in the stock and bond markets, but eventually some compromises are made and a deal is reached. The last few times we've seen this sort of drama, 2013, 2018 and 2021, things mostly worked out. Unlike in 2011, when the squabbling caused US debt to be downgraded by ratings agencies. The credit downgrade in 2011 contributed to the stock market falling 11% over a two-week period. The day the credit downgrade was announced on the 8th of August, the S&P 500 had one of its worst one-day declines in market history. It fell 6.7% that day, with all 500 stocks and all 10 industry groups declining. It wasn't just market volatility either. There was a real cost. The US Government Accountability Office estimates that the fight over raising the debt ceiling in 2011 raised borrowing costs for the government by $1.3 billion that year. The Bipartisan Policy Center extended the GAO's analysis and found that the scuffle ended up raising borrowing costs for the country by $18.9 billion over the next 10 years. A more worrying outcome for some investors is that Congress could use the debt ceiling as leverage to force through temporary or permanent government spending cuts. Companies whose revenues come largely from the federal government could come under pressure under those circumstances. 
Defence stocks that have done quite well over the last year could come under pressure if government spending was cut, as could infrastructure companies. Companies who benefit from Biden's Inflation Reduction Act could see reduced earnings expectations if government spending is reduced. This is not guaranteed, though. It's worth noting that a lot of the budget-cutting measures that were enacted to get the debt ceiling raised in 2011, the Budget Control Act, were mostly reversed with both Republicans and Democrats blaming each other for any problems that were caused. Republicans quickly began arguing that the budget cap should be lifted for defence spending, for example. Now, the most worrying outcome, which I should be clear is quite unlikely, is that Congress squabbles enough that the US actually misses an interest payment and falls into default. There are some political analysts saying that this is a reasonable possibility. Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody, says that there are senators and congresspeople openly contemplating a breach of the debt ceiling. Should a default occur, it could be very costly for the United States. In 1979, while Congress did manage to raise the debt ceiling right before a default would have been unavoidable, the failure of some 1970s-era word processing equipment used to print checks meant that the Treasury couldn't get the checks printed on time. Even though investors received their payments with only a small delay, T-bill yields jumped by 60 basis points that day and remained elevated for several months thereafter. The cost to taxpayers was in the tens of billions of dollars. This 1979 default was of course temporary and driven by a technological problem, not an unwillingness to pay. The Treasury did pay the $120 million shortfall after a short delay, but balked at paying additional interest to cover the period of delay. After some legal arm twisting and new legislation, the Treasury made all investors whole for that additional interest. You might say that this event in 1979 wasn't a real default. It was just a back office mix-up and the disruption applied to only a tiny amount of the nation's debt, mostly T-bills owned by individual investors. But a debt default occurs any time a creditor fails to make a payment on time. And by that standard, the United States did default that year. It was small, it was unintentional, but it was a default and it was an expensive mistake for the country. This doesn't need to be deliberately repeated on a larger scale. So what are the extraordinary measures the Treasury is taking so that it can keep meeting its obligations? Well, in order to generate additional borrowing capacity and stretch out the remaining cash on hand, Janet Yellen has said that the Treasury would first suspend new investments in various government accounts and make amendments to the Thrift Savings Plan for Federal Employees, which invests in non-marketable securities that mature every day. Under statutes designed by Congress, the Treasury can pause reinvestments for now, and these funds would be made whole after the debt ceiling situation is resolved. Once those measures run out, the Treasury would then likely begin prioritizing certain payments over others so that they can continue making interest and principal payments on the government's debt and avoid default. 
programs at risk could include things like federal salaries, social security, military health care coverage, things like that. In the past, we've seen situations where certain government employees are asked to continue going to work without paychecks and others are sent home without pay. In the past, we've seen things like the National Park Service being shut down due to partial government shutdowns. A process where the Treasury starts choosing who to pay and when to pay them would be both expensive and stretch the limits of the Treasury Department's financial technology systems. They're simply not set up for this. So what does the political situation look like? Well, Kevin McCarthy, the new Republican House Speaker, said that he had a very good conversation with Joe Biden last weekend and said that he told the president he wanted to sit down with him early and work through these challenges, which could be positive. McCarthy is, however, in a very weak position within his own party to push any compromise on rebellious party members after agreeing last week to a rule that would allow any single lawmaker to motion to remove him from his post. So what about the various solutions that people are proposing, like minting a trillion-dollar platinum coin? Okay, so... The coin argument has been around since the Obama administration's debt ceiling fights. The argument is that in 1996, a modification of the Coinage Act passed Congress and gave the US Treasury the authority to mint platinum coins of any denomination. The law was intended to allow the mint to make money from coin collectors and it gave the Treasury Secretary the power to mint platinum coins of any denomination. So a platinum coin wouldn't need to have a trillion dollars worth of platinum in it. It could just be given that face value. People argued that the Treasury could mint a trillion dollar coin, deposit it at the Federal Reserve, thus providing a means for the Treasury to fill up its bank account and to continue to make payments without violating any statute or provision of the Constitution. Another argument is that the President could simply invoke the 14th Amendment to pay the government bills. Bill Clinton said back in 2011 that during his budget standoff with Republicans, his staff researched the constitutional implications and that he would have used the 14th Amendment without hesitation and forced the courts to stop him. In 2011, Barack Obama said that he had talked with his lawyers and they were not persuaded that that's a winning argument. Finally, the premium bond argument is that the Treasury could issue bonds with really high interest rates to replace existing bonds as they expire. Investors would pay more for these bonds than their face value, but the national debt would just go up by the face value of these bonds. The debt limit statute applies to the face amount of obligations issued by the government, not their actual value. To start with, the Biden administration has already said that they don't intend to take executive action to avoid a default without congressional intervention. The problem with all of these solutions is that they're gimmicks, they're legally questionable, and the desperation of using these gimmicks could scare markets almost as much as a default would. I'm not sure that they would be as bad as a default, but they would highlight real dysfunction in the US government. 
Yesterday, Janet Yellen sent a letter confirming the breach of the debt ceiling. She cautioned that there is considerable uncertainty surrounding how long the extraordinary measures that are now being taken could continue before the US government defaults. She urged the lawmakers to move quickly. Yellen has previously said that it's unlikely that the government would run out of cash before early June, but there are a range of estimates as to when the US would run up against the possibility of default. The timing of the cliff edge depends on a list of factors, including things like incoming tax receipts. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Make sure you tell your friends about it because that's how podcasts grow. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.